All right, we are in Luke 17. We're starting a new chapter today. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 6 of Luke 17. Father, we do pray that you would grant special help and favor to us as we look into your word. The Lord, these words that were penned so many hundreds of years ago, would we would see how they're relevant to our lives. And that, Lord, we would have the grace of your Spirit to apply them and to live them out and to obey them, that we might glorify the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, if you haven't turned there already, open up to Luke 17, verse 1. He, that is Jesus, said to his disciples, It is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times, saying, I repent, forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, Increase our faith. And the Lord said, If you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. In the Gospel of Luke, starting at chapter 9 and verse 51, there is a shift in direction. Luke 9, 51. I just went back to Matthew. Let me go to Luke. <laughs> Luke 9, 51 says, When the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. Now, up until Luke 9.51, Jesus has been traveling mostly in the northern part of Palestine, around the Sea of Galilee. He's gone to Nain. He's been in Capernaum and Bethsaida. On the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, Gadara, where he healed the demoniac who had all those demons inside of him. So he's been, he's been up there in that region doing lots and lots of ministry. But when we get to Luke 9.51, it says that there's a shift now. He has determined now that he's setting his face to go to Jerusalem. And of course he's going to Jerusalem because he knows it's there that he's going to die and rise again from the dead. It's there that he's going to make redemption for sinners. And so, starting in Luke 9.51, we see him slowly begin to travel towards Jerusalem. He doesn't make a straight... It's not as the crow flies. He doesn't go straight towards Jerusalem, but he zigzags in and out. And he continues to go through all these villages and towns on his way to Jerusalem. And as he goes, he preaches the kingdom of God, he heals the sick, and he casts out demons. That's what he does wherever he goes. And when he appoints his disciples to go out and do the same thing, that's exactly what he tells them to do. Preach, heal, and cast out demons. And so from 951 all the way until we arrive in Jerusalem, Jesus is purposely ministering, preaching, healing, casting out demons, weaving in and out of the various towns and villages, but he's on his way to Jerusalem. And as he's going there, he preaches to two groups of people. Well, there's actually three. Sometimes he preaches to the crowds, but usually he'll preach either to his disciples 
or he will instruct the Pharisees and the scribes. So either he speaks specifically to his own disciples or he speaks specifically to this group of scribes and Pharisees. And I just went back through and just started to notice from Luke 9.51 on, and it's almost like a, a ping-pong tournament. Jesus talks to the disciples, then he talks to the Pharisees. Then he talks to the disciples, then he talks to the Pharisees. For example, in Luke 11, verses 1 to 13, he speaks specifically to his disciples about prayer. In Luke 11, 14 to 26, he speaks specifically to the Pharisees about how he's able to cast out demons. He says, no, I'm not doing it by the ruler of the demons. I'm doing it by the Spirit of God. Then he comes back in Luke 12, 1 to 12, and he talks to his disciples about bewaring of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. And he goes on to tell them, that God will providentially care for them and that they are to confess Jesus before men. But then in Luke 11, 37 to 52, Jesus again speaks to the Pharisees and the lawyers and he issues six woes. He warns them of the sins that they are committing and where it's going to lead them. Then in Jack, uh, Luke 12, 22 to 34, he speaks to his disciples again and he's speaking to them about not worrying not being anxious. But in chapter 13, verses 31 to 35, he's speaking to the Pharisees, and he's telling them that how often he wanted to protect the people of Jerusalem from what's ahead, from what's coming, but they would not have it. The leaders of Israel would not have it, and so their temple, their house, was going to be left to them desolate. In other words, judgment was coming upon the Jewish nation. In Luke chapter 16, verses 1 to 13, Jesus speaks to his disciples again. And here he speaks to them about money and the right use of money. And he says to them, make friends for yourselves by the use of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, your friends will receive you into the eternal dwellings. In other words, use your money to win souls. But in Luke 14, verses 1 to 6, he speaks to the Pharisees about the Sabbath day and about their own pride. I, can you get the point that he goes back and forth, back and forth, talking to one group of people, then talking to another group of people? And so when we come to Luke 17, you'll notice that he's speaking to his disciples here. But he's speaking to his disciples because he knows that the Pharisees have set a bad example, a bad pattern for his disciples. And Jesus doesn't want the disciples to follow the Pharisees' example. Now, he's already done this one time before. In Luke 12, verse 1, he began saying to his disciples, first of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So he spoke to his disciples, but he told his disciples, don't do what those Pharisees are doing. Watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees, the leaven that they're spreading and is fomenting and is growing. It's hypocrisy. I don't want you to be hypocrites. I don't want you to be full of hypocrisy. He's doing the same thing here in Luke 17. He's telling them about living the Christian life, but he's telling them not to be like the Pharisees. Okay, for example, he talks about stumbling blocks in verses 1 and 2. Well, the Pharisees were setting these stumbling blocks before other people. They were causing little ones to stumble. And we'll get into that in just a minute. So that's why he tells them, it's inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. 
it would be better for a millstone to be tied around your neck and to be cast into the depths of the sea than for you to cause one of these little ones to stumble. Don't be like the Pharisees. And then he says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. Well, the Pharisees were known for not forgiving anyone. The Pharisees did not get involved in people's lives to restore them. They weren't rebuking people for the purpose of restoring them and getting them into a right relationship with God. They weren't seeking to disciple these little ones. They were seeking to avoid anybody who they felt was contaminated by sin so that they would be separate and pure. But Jesus says, don't be like them. I want you to be forgiving. I want you to be rebuking. I want you to be restoring. And then in verses 7 through 10, which we're not going to get in today, but in verses 7 through 10, he says, don't be like the Pharisees in the fact that they had this exalted opinion of themselves. They were puffed up and they had vaunted themselves with pride and they thought that they were so righteous and so good and so holy. And Jesus says, when you do everything that you're commanded, just say we're unworthy slaves. We've done only what we ought to have done. In other words, do not take your cues from this group. I want you to take your cues from me. This is how I want you to live in contrast to way, the way you see these supposed righteous men living out their lives before you. Now, today, we're going to focus on three great qualities of the Christian. And those qualities are love, forgiveness, and faith. Those are the ones that Jesus brings to light in verses 1 to 6. So let's focus on them. Number one is the quality of love. The quality of love. He said to his disciples, It is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard. Now that's where I believe we should stop that first section on love. Notice he's talking about stumbling blocks. How many have an NASB Bible today? How many have an ESV? What else do you have out there? New King James. <laughs> New King James. Does it use the word stumbling block? He uses offenses. Offenses, okay. So the different translations go in all kinds of different directions when it comes to this phrase. The Greek word behind this word stumbling block was the word scandalon. We get the word scandal from that word. Uh, basically, in its original form, this word meant a bait stick. Now, if you've ever set a trap for a mouse, have you ever done that and had a mouse trap? Remember that hammer you pull back and you cock it and you put it in place and then you put a piece of cheese or peanut butter on the other little stick? That's the bait stick. And when that mouse starts to eat that peanut butter or that cheese, it trips it and that hammer comes down and he's killed fairly quickly. So this stumbling block was a trap. It was something that would trip people up and trap them and could cause devastation and destruction in their life. It, it came to be, to, to be known for any enticement to serious sin. That's why the ESV uh, translates this as temptation to sin instead of stumbling block. So he's saying to his disciples, I don't want you to provoke my little ones to sin, 
to entice them to sin, to cause them to stumble in their walk with Jesus. I want you not to do that. I want you to love them so much that you would do anything you have to do to keep them from falling into a pattern of sin and defecting in their walk with Jesus Christ. Now, the Pharisees had been laying these stumbling blocks. They'd laid them by their example. If you go back to Luke 16, verses 14 to 18, this is the example of the Pharisees. They loved money. They opposed the truth. They justified themselves. They sought the applause of men. And they rejected the gospel. We, we went through those verses a couple weeks back and we saw all those patterns that the Pharisees were living out. So just by their example, they could be laying these stumbling blocks because if these little ones started to follow their example, they're going to start to love money instead of God. They're going to start to justify themselves instead of humble themselves before God. They will oppose the truth instead of humbly receive the truth. Do you see what I mean? And it's going to cause them to walk into this pattern of sin and eventually they could find themselves walking away from Jesus Christ. And so it can be by your example, but it can also be by your teaching. You can provide a stumbling block through false teaching. Can you think of anybody today that may have been laying snares and traps for people just by the things they teach, which are false? The whole health and wealth gospel, I think, is a stumbling block. Because it gets people's minds on wanting more money, greed, covetousness, focusing on the temporal rather than the eternal. And it can cause people to stumble rather than keeping their eyes on Christ and the great truths, basic truths of Scripture, which are sin and repentance and uh, faith and love. These things that are essential, they get themselves all wrapped up in things that are kind of peripheral to the Christian life. I think also the hyper-grace teaching can be a stumbling block. That's the teaching that you don't have to confess your sins once you are a Christian. You don't need to repent any longer because God's grace covers everything. I think also the teaching that says it's not necessary for you to submit your life to Jesus as Lord. Just trust in Him as your Savior. If you get around to acknowledging Him as Lord later on, that's okay. But it's not necessary to be saved. I think that's also uh, a doctrine that can cause stumbling blocks for little ones because it teaches them that it's really not essential that I obey Jesus. Well, my friend, it is essential. A true faith will obey. It will obey. So both by example and by word, we can lay these traps and these stumbling blocks for other people. <clears throat> now notice what he says about them in verse 17. It is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. What he means by that is, they will. They have to. There's no way that they can't come. Now, do you know why it's inevitable that these stumbling blocks are, are going to come in the lives of God's people? The yeah, the enemy is one. Another one is we. this world has fallen, and every person in it carries around in their heart the seeds of Adam's rebellion. And so sin is everywhere. It pervades the entire earth that we live on. And on top of that, even though we're saved, we still have sin that lurks within our hearts that we have to repent of. So sin is everywhere. And these traps to entice others into sin are laid everywhere. You just drive down the road and you see traps. You, you go anywhere into society and you see traps that if you follow them, you will fall into sin.
So yes, it is inevitable. <clears throat> now he says in verse 2, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Who is he talking about? Who are the little ones that we should make sure we don't stumble? Well, we're not specifically told here in Luke, but there is a parallel verse in Matthew 18 that, that throws light on this. In Matthew 18, verse 6, Jesus says, But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. So this isn't just any little one. It's a little one who believes in Jesus. So we're not talking about children specifically. We're talking about young believers. People who have just begun to follow Jesus. Now, if you go back in your Bible, just two chapters, I think we see an example of this. In Luke 15, there it says in verse 1, Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him, <clears throat> both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So notice the two different things that are taking place at once. You've got lots of uh, tax collectors and sinners, harlots, prostitutes, thieves, that kind of riffraff. <laughs> These are the people coming to Jesus. What does Jesus do? He's receiving them. He's eating with them. And then you've got these scribes and Pharisees over here, and they're watching this, and how do they react? They grumble. They murmur. They're unhappy about that. So these scribes and Pharisees would prefer that Jesus not associate with these tax collectors and sinners on this, on this hand over here. What they're doing is they're laying a stumbling block for these little ones, these tax collectors, these harlots, these thieves, these notorious sinners, by wanting them, doing whatever they can to drive them away from Jesus and trying to persuade Jesus to have nothing to do with them. They're laying traps for them so that they will trip and fall and end up away from Jesus Christ. Now Jesus says in Luke 17, verse 1, it's inevitable that these stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. Do you know what that word woe implies? Disaster. Yeah, disaster. Really, it's talking about cursed are you. Woe to you. Damned are you. Really, it's talking about eternal damnation. Woe unto you means I am damned, I am judged, I am undone before a holy God. So Jesus is saying it is very, very serious to cause a young believer to stumble in their faith. Woe to you. This, this is very serious. And he, he even gives an example. It would be better for that person who's causing a young believer to stumble, it would be better to have a, a millstone hung around his neck and cast into the sea. Now we say, what in the world is going on there? I, I did a little research, and the Jews did not do this, but the Greeks and the Romans occasionally did. As one of their forms of capital punishment, they would actually do what Jesus is talking about. They would take, go out in a, a large boat or ship, and they would have a millstone, which is very heavy, and they would tie this person to a millstone and just roll it off the edge. And, of course, he's tumbling in the water. It's dragging him down to the bottom of the sea. 
and in a minute or two or three, he would probably be dead. Maybe sooner because of the pressure going so deep to the bottom of the sea. Jesus is saying, it would be better, you'd be better off if you were dead than if you were to cause a little one to stumble. He's trying to impress upon his followers how serious it is not to do anything that would entice another believer to sin. Not to do anything that would trap them or trip them up or cause them to leave off following Jesus Christ. And so he applies this in verse 3. And I believe when he says, be on your guard, he probably has reference to what he has already been saying. This is his conclusion to this thing about stumbling blocks. Be on your guard. In other words, watch out for yourselves that you don't provide a stumbling block to somebody else. Watch out that you don't entice someone into sin or lead someone into a path where they're going to walk away from Jesus Christ. And so if there is a a person in our church that we know uh, has been an alcoholic. We should never, ever provide an enticement for them to drink alcohol. Now, you know, we should never say, hey, why don't you come over, we'll have a beer together. Come over and have dinner, we'll have a glass of wine. Well, let's go out to El Favorito and have a margarita. You know, that, that would be doom. It could be doomed for an ex-alcoholic when he's, he's tempted to go in a direction that is just going to take him into destruction. Um, also, if we were to ever to lead someone to do something that their conscience cannot approve of, Romans 14 says, you're leading that person into sin. Whatever is not of faith, he says, is sin. Turn over with me to Romans 14. Romans 14, verse 13. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to what? To love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Let me just stop and make a quick explanation. He's talking about meat sacrificed to idols here. In that particular culture, there were idol temples all over the place. And oftentimes, um, somebody may invite you to dinner and they may put, put meat in front of you barbecued meat or you know whatever they they have this meat that's been cooked and you don't know where it came from and you might have a very tender conscience in your conscience you might feel that i i ought not to eat any meat that's been sacrificed to an idol that would be wrong now paul makes the point later in first corinthians 8 that an idol's nothing an idol's not a god <laughs> so eat if you want to eat don't eat if you don't want to eat it really doesn't matter but some people don't have that knowledge, Paul is saying. And so their conscience is bound to stay away from the, that meat that was sacrificed to an idol. And so that's why he says, don't destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. He says in verse 16, Therefore do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, 
but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. Do you follow this thought there? If you have a, a person with a sensitive conscience and they don't have the faith to drink alcohol or to eat this particular thing for whatever reason, then don't offer it to them. In fact, go without yourself. You don't drink that wine or that alcoholic beverage or eat that particular food when you have them over if it's going to cause them to stumble. He says also in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 13, Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. So food and drink can cause somebody to stumble. But there's lots of other ways that we can cause people to stumble. If we invite somebody to, to watch a particular movie that they have their conscience bound not to watch a particular rating, and you say, come on over, let's watch this movie, and it's rated PG-13 or whatever, and, and, and they have their conscience bound not to watch anything over a G, then in that sense you might be causing them to stumble. Maybe they're going to feel like they've sinned against God just by watching that movie. I mean, it can play itself out in all kinds of different ways. In Romans 15, verse 1, Paul says, Now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. What he means by those who are strong is those people who have faith to do certain things that others don't have the faith to do. He says, each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. So here's the principle. What's the overarching principle of not putting a stumbling block in someone's path? So love that person. <coughs> to restrain your own liberties because you love them and you don't want them to go into a path of sin. You don't want to trip them or trap them. You don't want them to fall away from Christ or defect from the Christian faith. And so we are to love each other. We are to seek the, the good of one another. We are to seek to restore each other and to watch out for each other when someone begins to stray. And we are never, never to purposefully or knowingly ever do something that would cause another brother to fall into a pattern of sin. Because we love each other. That's the point. The church of Jesus Christ is to love each other and we're to seek the best for one another. And so, of course, the opposite of putting a stumbling block in someone's path is to find a little one and help them to grow spiritually. Instead of enticing them to sin, let's motivate them towards righteousness and holiness. Remember... Hebrews 10, I think it's 24 and 25, he says the reason you gather as a church is to encourage one another to love and good deeds, to stir up, provoke each other to love and good deeds. So the opposite of putting a stumbling block before these little ones is to build up and disciple and encourage and promote the spiritual growth of a little one. So let me ask you this. Are there any little ones in your life 
that you are working with to promote their spiritual life, to help them grow to maturity in Christ. We call that discipleship. Do you have anybody that you're working with as someone younger than you that you can help to grow to maturity? That would be an effect of love. Find somebody. It doesn't even have to be in your own particular church. It could be any brother or any sister that needs help growing in the Lord and start to spend time with them. Pour your life into them. Meet, them, meet with them weekly. Meet with them at Starbucks for coffee or whatever. Meet, meet with them at your own house and, and just spend some time praying with them. Ask them how they're doing in the Lord. Maybe you just read Scripture and discuss it together. But this is a way that you can do the opposite of what Jesus is forbidding His disciples to do. You can pour yourself into one of these little ones. So there we have this characteristic of love. Let's look at the second one, which is forgiveness. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. If your brother sins, rebuke him. Now, I believe that Jesus is speaking mainly, maybe not entirely, but mainly about if he sins in a way against you. But of course, it wouldn't have to be, but oftentimes that will be the situation. If your brother sins, and if he sins against you, you are to rebuke him. Now, he takes for granted the fact that disciples are going to sin against other disciples. We're all fallen. We live in a fallen world. We will sin against each other. That's the sad truth. How do we handle that? When someone sins against you, how are you supposed to handle it? Do you just decide, well, I'm just going to avoid that person? When I see them in the grocery store, I'm going to turn around and go the other way. I'm going to stop coming to church because I don't want to face them anymore. You know, that's one way that people deal with sin, but it's not the biblical way. <laughs> Another way that people deal with sin is they just get angry and they get frustrated and they vent and they pour out all this anger and they spew it out on somebody. Well, that's not the biblical way of dealing with sinning either. Jesus says, if your brother sins, what are you supposed to do? Rebuke him. That's what he said. Now, what does it mean to rebuke somebody? It means to reprimand them or censure them. Deliver a strong warning to them. Um, I think we need to make it real clear that we don't necessarily rebuke a brother for every single sin that we see them committing. <laughs> because we, in 1 Peter 4.8, Peter says, Love each other fervently from the heart, for love covers a multitude of sins. Can you think what life would be like if you had to rebuke every brother or sister that did anything that was not perfectly righteous? Every single time you had to go around rebuking them, we'd be doing nothing else than rebuking. All the, that's what we spend all of our time doing. <laughs> I mean, think about just in a, in, a, in a marriage. The husband and wife, and the husband doesn't do something perfectly righteous. The wife has got to rebuke him, and the husband has got to rebuke her. I mean, you can see the turmoil that that's going to create. That, that's why we're told that love covers over a multitude of sins. There's a multitude of situations where we don't have to rebuke. 
we can forgive, we can pray for that person, we can just cover it over, like where Paul says in Ephesians, he says in Ephesians chapter 4, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So I think in that verse you also see this idea of tolerance, forbearance, putting up with the faults and the sins of other people. But there are situations when you're going to have to rebuke a person when they've sinned. And how do you tell the difference? Well, I've come up with a few questions that might be helpful as you think your way through this. How do I know when I need to actually confront somebody with their sin versus just covering it over? Well, number one, ask yourself this. Is their sin damaging my relationship with them? Has it gotten to the point where our relationship is starting to be damaged because of that particular sin? Number two, is their sin seriously hurting other people? Is it seriously hurting other people? Number three, is their sin having a negative impact on the church? In other words, is it like leaven and this sin is spreading within the church because of this individual? It's impacting the church. Number four, is their sin seriously hurting themselves? And then number five, is this sin an often repeated pattern? Meaning, is it planned and willful? Let me say that again. Is this sin an often repeated, repeated pattern, which is planned and willful? So if you're answering yes to those questions, you probably have a situation where you're going to need to confront that person about this situation. You need to rebuke them for their sin. So, what do you do if in the church you find out that some person is gossiping about you? They're spreading lies and rumors and innuendos about you and it's damaging your relationship with that person and damaging your relationship with other people within the church. I say that's a situation that you need to go to them and you need to confront that situation. You need to do it humbly and you need to do it in love and you need to be open to the fact that maybe you have misunderstood Maybe gossip really isn't happening, but you, need, you probably need to take it to the next level and talk to that person about the situation. What if you find out that a person within the church has started taking drugs or is getting drunk? I think that's a serious issue. They're hurting themselves in a serious way. What about if you find out that somebody within the church is teaching heresy? Maybe it's a, a Bible study a home Bible study, but still, they're impacting others with heresy and starting to lead people astray. That's definitely a situation that must be confronted. What about if you hear that somebody is committing fornication or adultery or homosexuality? I think all of those are cases where definitely sin must be confronted. But let's say that you pray about it you, you, you think, okay, the Lord wants me to talk to this person about the sin in their life. According to Galatians 6.1, you're looking to yourself that you will not be tempted. You're, you're praying that the Holy Spirit will fill you 
and that you won't go with a holier-than-thou attitude, but you've come in a humble and a meek spirit, all that's great. And you go to that person and you talk to them about the sin issue, but they don't receive you. They don't receive it. They won't hear you. Now what do you do? Do you just let it drop? According to Matthew 18, you can't do that. If it's of such a serious nature that you needed to confront them about your sin, the next thing you do is take one or two people with you and you confront them again so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be established. In other words, now the circle's increasing in size. You started off with one-on-one -on -one and you don't go talking to other people about the sin issue and asking other people to pray for so-and-so because they've got a real problem. That's just gossiping. You go to them in private and you talk to them in private about the issue. But if they will not repent, remember Jesus says if they repent, forgive them. Well, they're not repenting. So then, according to Jesus in Matthew 18, you take one or two more and then you have a, a larger circle. Three of you now or two are witnessing whether they're going to respond to the, the Word of God or whether they will refuse the Word of God. And if they won't listen to the two or three... What does Jesus tell you to do at that point? You have to bring it before the whole church. So the church must be let in on this. Now you've got a real big circle. And now you've got lots of people that are going to that erring brother or sister, urging them to repent. And they might do this through letters, through emails, through phone calls, through personal visits. But the whole church is now trying to bring back this brother or sister who's got into a pattern of sin that they won't repent of. And if they won't even listen to the church, Jesus says at that point you disfellowship them, you treat them like a tax collector, a Jew wouldn't even have anything to do with the tax collector, or a Gentile, you, you cut, cut them off from the life of the body. 1 Corinthians 5 says you don't associate with them, you don't even eat with them. They are excluded from the life of the body until they come to repentance. And if they do come to repentance, you greet them with open arms and you embrace them and you forgive them and you welcome them back. So if they repent, he says, forgive them. Now, here's another question that arises. It sounds like this is conditional, doesn't it? If he repents, forgive him. Well, what if he doesn't repent? Do I not forgive him? See, forgiveness can be looked at from two different perspectives. There's two different senses in which we can forgive. Let me try to help you with this by showing you Mark 11.25. Jesus says, Whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. Now here he's saying, when you stand praying before God, if you have anything against anyone. That covers everything, doesn't it? <laughs> Forgive them. In other words, you're not going to be able to have this audience with God and He's not going to hear your prayers and your relationship's going to be broken if you, when you go to Him in prayer, refuse to forgive somebody else. So there is a sense in which forgiveness must be unconditional. In your heart, you've got to release everyone from the debts that you believe they owe you. Because forgiveness really means to cancel a debt. So when you go to God and you're praying, you have to be willing to cancel everybody else's debt that they owe you. Now that's in your heart. 
But now there's another sense of forgiveness which is different than that. And this is the sense of forgiveness where the relationship is restored. And true reconciliation takes place. And I think that's what Jesus means in Luke 17. He's saying, if they repent, then assure him of your forgiveness so that the relationship is actually restored to what it was before. Their true reconciliation has taken place because they have repented and you have expressed forgiveness and now there is that oneness again. So do, can you see from the two perspectives how forgiveness can work? Okay. Now, Jesus says, if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times, saying, I repent, forgive him. Wow. I don't know, probably none of us have ever had that experience, have you? Where someone did the same sin in a single day seven different times and kept coming back and telling you that they were sorry, please forgive me, I repent. Um, I think Jesus brings this thing up about seven in response to a question that Peter had asked him over in Matthew 18. This is the parallel passage. In Matthew 18.21, Peter came and said to Jesus, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? So I believe Jesus here in Luke is simply re responding to Jesus' question. Up to seven times you have to be willing to forgive somebody. And then he goes on in other places to say, and it's not just seven, it's 70 times seven. In other words, he's not giving a statistical number of how many times that you keep score, and when it's number eight, you say, oh, sorry, <laughs> you won over the line, I can't forgive you anymore. He's simply saying it's, it's an endless amount of forgiveness. That as often as they for, repent, you, you must be willing to forgive them and restore the relationship. Now, questions come up at this point in my mind. Does forgiving someone mean that you have to then trust that person that you have just forgiven? Have you ever struggled with that question? I believe the answer to that is no. You see, trust is earned gradually over time as people prove that they're trustworthy and they grow in holiness. Let's say you've got small children and you had a babysitter and that babysitter molested your children and you found out about it. And they repented and they came to you and expressed their repentance. Well, you're duty-bound to forgive them, but you're not duty-bound to say, why don't you come back next Tuesday and watch my kids again? That would be crazy. <laughs> that would be foolish to do that, wouldn't it? So trust must be earned, and is earned gradually as you watch a person's life and as they grow in holiness. So forgiveness and trust are not synonymous with each other. One does not necessarily imply the next. Another question, does forgiveness mean that you must remove all the negative consequences of a person's sin? Let's say that you're a boss, and your employee has lied and stolen. And he comes to you and admits that and asks you to forgive him. Well, you're duty-bound to forgive him, but are you duty-bound not to fire him? Not at all. Now, you might, out of a heart of graciousness, you might just let all the negative consequences go, but you might decide that it's in his best interests if he must face some negative consequences for his sin so that he can grow in his Christian life. Now, that happened to David. Remember, David committed adultery with Bathsheba. He ordered that her husband be killed in the line of fire. 
terribly tragic sins in the life of the, the, the king of Israel. But over in 2 Samuel chapter 12, notice what takes place. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13. David said to Nathan the prophet, I have sinned against the Lord. So here he's confessing his sin, he's repenting of his sin. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. So God has forgiven you. Wonderful. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. There were consequences that God nailed David for. He didn't take away the negative consequences. He let David go through some very bitter, bitter experiences. Remember how David went for a whole week fasting and praying that maybe God would revive his child, but instead the child died? Agony of soul. And that was part of God's plan to mature his child, to mature his son, so that he would never again do what he had done before. So no, forgiveness does not mean that we necessarily remove all negative consequences of sin from a person's life. <clears throat> now, let me just ask you this. How are you doing when it comes to forgiving other people? This gets very down-home and personal, doesn't it? I can remember a time in my life when it was very difficult for me to forgive somebody. So I can relate with you guys if you're having a hard time with it. I had an employee in Sonora two hours away who, I won't go into all the details, it take forever. But basically, um, I ended up paying $2,000 to him that I didn't owe him because he was spreading lies about what our agreement had been. Now, to give him the benefit of the doubt, I bet he probably did believe what he was telling the other people, but it was not true. And I went through a lot of grief with that, a lot of, it was, it was horrible, and I found in my heart this resentment this harboring this ill will towards this person and I had to battle that it wasn't it wasn't easy to make a decision to forgive that person but thank God I, I was able to eventually uh, I wasn't able to do it immediately I knew I had to and I struggled with it and I was fighting for that forgiveness um, so if you're having a hard time today forgiving somebody know that other believers have the same difficulty but you must forgive them this isn't optional Remember in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says, Forgive us our debts just as we forgive those who are indebted to us. In other words, I can't expect God to forgive me if I'm unwilling to forgive anybody else. This is part of the Christian life that we must embrace to be Christians. So if you are struggling with forgiveness, I just want to urge you today to make a decision of the will that you're just going to release it. And if thoughts come back to you about how that wasn't right, and that, that happened to me for weeks. You're going to have to fight those thoughts and say, I, I rebuke you thoughts. I'm not even entertaining you anymore. I have forgiven this brother and it's gone. It's over. Do you know when you forgive, you are most like God? Because God is the great forgiver. God went to the ultimate lengths to send his son so that he could forgive millions of people, millions and millions of sins. And when you forgive other people, you are just acting like your Father in heaven. You're imitating His example. Now the third thing that Jesus brings up is this character quality of faith. Notice verse 5. The apostles said to the Lord, Increase our faith. 
Now, do you know why they would have said that right after he tells them they have to forgive seven times in a day? <laughs> because they're thinking, Lord, I can't do that. I, that's going to be impossible, Lord. You're just asking too much here. We need faith. <laughs> we need faith that you're going to enable us to do what seems to us impossible to do. We need faith that you're going to correct that sinning believer. And we need faith that you're going to protect those people like me who are being sinned against. So Lord, please increase my faith so that I can do what you've just told me that I must do. And so Jesus says, if you had faith like a mustard seed. Now what would that tell us? What was a mustard seed like? What do we know about a mustard seed? Yeah, it was the smallest of all known seeds that farmers would cast into their gardens. Smallest one. So he's saying, if you had a tiny, tiny bit of faith, just like a mustard seed, but you would take that faith and you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be cast into the sea, it would obey you. Now that's kind of a strange statement. Did, did Jesus intend for us to take this literally? Did he want his disciples walking around casting trees into the sea? Even Jesus didn't. There's never any, a single occasion where Jesus cast a tree into the sea. And if anybody had all faith, it was Jesus Christ. I think he intends for us to understand this figuratively. Whatever problem or situation or challenge you're facing, he's saying, if you have real living faith, even though it is tiny, if you will exercise that faith, you can see miracles take place. Not necessarily trees springing up out of your front yard and be hurling through the air, but that, that crisis or that challenge or that problem can be eliminated, it can be uprooted and removed from you if you exercise even a tiny degree of true faith. Notice he says, if you would say to this mulberry tree, See, somebody is actually acting on their faith. They're doing something with their faith. They're speaking. I know when I start to say this, I'm starting to sound like people I just um, spoke against a few minutes ago. But there is truth in verse 6. He says, if you say to this mulberry tree. So how would I apply all of this? I would apply it this way. Whenever you face a challenge... Whenever you face a sin problem, whenever you face, face some kind of crisis, do you exercise your faith by speaking the Word of God to that situation? In other words, do you go to one of God's promises and do you claim that promise? I want to encourage you, next time that you're facing a difficult situation in your life, to go to God's Word Find a promise that applies to that situation and speak it back to God in prayer. Remind God of His own promises. It's in that way that your faith is laying hold of God's Word. You're speaking out the Word of God so that you are exercising faith. Okay, let me try to make this more concrete. Maybe that'll help. Let's say it's the 20th of the month and you're flat broke and you don't have anything in the refrigerator, and you have no money to buy food. What do you do? Philippians 4.19. Here's a promise. If you have been a faithful giver, the promise to you is, and my God shall supply all of your needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. 
Take your Bible into your prayer closet, read the promise to God, and tell Him, Lord, you've so, you said this. I'm taking you at your word. I believe your word, Lord, and I believe that you are going to provide my needs according to your riches and glory. Or, let's say that you feel like the Lord has called you to do something that for you is just impossible. Maybe it's... It's a husband loving his wife or a wife submitting to her husband. Or maybe it's witnessing the gospel to a co-worker and you just have this deathly fear of doing that. And, and you feel paralyzed and you feel like, man, I just, I know God wants me to, but I just feel like I can't do it. What do you do in that case? Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Take the promise to God. Lord, you said it. It must be true. I believe your word, Lord. Answer according to your will. Or let's say you are just stuck in your Christian life and you feel like you're not growing. You're afraid you're not even going to persevere to the end. You're wondering, can I even last? I, I, you're, you're discouraged. You're, you're about ready to throw in the towel. Philippians 1.6 For I am convinced of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. Speak out that promise in prayer to God. Lord, you promised that if you began a good work in me, you're going to perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. I lay hold of that promise today, Lord. I believe it's true. You're saying to the mulberry tree, be uprooted, be cast into the sea. Let's say that you're going through suffering day after day after day, pain. And that is causing confusion in your life. You don't know how to make sense of this suffering and this pain in your life. Romans 8.28 And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. To me, because I love God and because I'm called according to His purpose. Speak the Word of God. You're, you're not just speaking it for God's ears, you're speaking it for your own. <laughs> Faith comes by hearing and hearing the Word of Christ. So take the promises and speak them and believe them and watch mulberry trees be uprooted and be cast into the sea watch God work in your own soul as you lay hold of the word of God so let's draw all of this down to a conclusion Jesus has talked to us about love not laying stumbling blocks before others he's talked to us about forgiveness up to seven times a day if someone repents he's talked to us about faith these are the fingerprints of the Christian. These are the things he should be marked and known by. Love, forgiveness, and faith. These are the things that the Spirit of God causes to flow from his life. Do they flow from your life? Are you stuck when it comes to one of those three things? Have you gotten stuck in not being able to forgive somebody? And maybe I shouldn't say not able to. Maybe I should say not willing to. That's probably closer to the truth. Are you not willing to? Are you showing real love to the brethren but really looking out for their best interests? Putting them before yourself. What about faith? Are you exercising faith or are you just kind of neglecting that whole area of your Christian life? Well, God has called us to love fervently, to forgive continually, and to trust Him implicitly. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that You would help each one of us to grow today. All of us have areas that need spiritual growth to take place. 
None of us have arrived, Lord. We're all in process. We're all on journey. We ask for your grace to help us. In Jesus' holy name, amen.